Okay, here it is. It's uh, the next installment of the Franco Files. And uh, we're back. We're back. And I don't know what we're going to call this one, but I have some suspicions. Because (laughs) we have our main boy, Jess Franco, now leaving his tenure in sort of his beginning days and going to work with a certain producer by the name of Harry Allen Towers. Now, I have to just give a little background on Mr. Towers here because <laughs> it's a pretty interesting background. As yeah. often as the case was producers. Yeah, this guy. So <laughs> after he had basically in Britain, in London, he was working uh, producing radio shows, Scarlet Pimpernel being the the main one and uh for some reason or another, he had to declare bankruptcy. So, as you do, as you do. Now, the reasons he declares bankruptcy could be a little interesting. I wish we had time to get into this, but we don't because we're trying to turn over a new leaf. So, let's do a Patreon episode where we get to actually go on this because there's so much. Okay, so we'll t- we'll tantalize you with Mr. Towers. So he, quote unquote, <laughs> declares bankruptcy, moves to the United States and is essentially arrested, well not essentially, he is arrested in 1961 for essentially being a pimp? Yep, a, no, it's literally under what was known as the White Slave Trade Act, is what yep. he is prosecuted under, um, for a specific woman, um, but yeah, he's uh, yeah. brought up to, uh, uh, Yeah, her name was Maria Nov- Novotny. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, uh, along with another woman with, the, I forget her first name, Keeler. So is it Mary Keeler or I don't know. These two women are caught up in a gigantic scandal that rocked, uh, British politics in the early sixties called the Profumo affair, which essentially involves MI5 using some agents to spy and use honeypots, which are these women, to seduce certain people. Uh, Mostly a Russian uh, admiral was the big thing. And again, this is so hard. I have to just move past this. But Gary Allen Towers is allegedly caught up with MI5, which might mean he probably crossed paths with Robert Maxwell, who is Ghislaine Maxwell's father. and we'll, okay, we'll get into this. We'll get into this another time. We have to. We have to do its own episode because it's nuts. I truly Look, stopped reading yesterday, and then again today, I had to stop. Become a Patreon member to hear something more than Will talking about the different cuts of things. We'll go into how this, how how Franco comes dangerously close to the Epstein uh, saga and uh, just spy sex trafficking and blackmail in general. So. He's also this Harry Allen Towers guy. Not only is he involved with that, he's also gets involved. Allegedly, uh, this woman, Maria Novotny, gets kind of close to President Kennedy and might have been spying on Kennedy during the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> We're truly you can I promise you can all check on this, too. We're this. It sounds very tinfoily, but this is all well documented. So it's unfortunately true. So. 
Long story short, Mr. Towers skips bail, makes his way to Eastern Europe, and he essentially comes up with a strategy of putting his all the production money that he's going to use in certain tax havens, like if you're a big tax haven head out there, Liechtenstein, there's one of the best places to hide your money. And yeah, even this note says reportedly um, on set, armed guards bought, brought bags of money to the set to like pay for things, which is also it's it's worth definitely noting. a guy not working with intelligence. Oh, yeah. It's worth noting as well. It's an important detail, um, especially as Franco is wise in where this eventually goes. Um Harry Allen Towers famously refused to ever put a cent of his own money into any of the uh, bajillion movies that he produced. Yes. It was never his own money. <laughs> no, it was never his own money. Get, take guesses to where he got that money. And I just want there to be a connection where Kennedy technically produced the girl from Rio. <laughs> right, okay, this is too tantalizing a subject. We're we're We'll, we'll get we will answer we will go off that question soon but um uh, mr towers also so he didn't use his own money he also would reportedly waste most of the money for the production whining and dining different producers distributors actors blah 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 so when it came time to actually shoot uh franco had to be very creative because the money sometimes was not there and that show up a lot for Dracula when we get there. Yes, that's a big that's a big one, and the reasons for that. So, <laughs> um, Towers though was very creative. He wrote the screenplays for everything he did that Franco did, which is I don't know if creative is a strong word or is, is the right word because that has a positive okay uh, to it. He was uh, smart because he didn't have to fucking pay anyone, so he put words on pages. <laughs> that's true he did do he will be okay well he put words on pages <laughs> and um somehow was able to link up with roger corman and aip and well, have part been, of that is the uh oliver unger connection as well and so that's yeah. Unger productions and so that too they are also combining forces because so after <laughs> what's that after, guy brevin too yep yeah but after after towers is no longer allowed to be in the U.S. because of this lawsuit that we're talking about, which it's important to note, and Stephen Thoreau does a lot, that it seemed like no one was really pursuing him because he was not being, you know, like sneaky about where he was in the world. He was a very big producer. Uh, but so he can't come to the U.S., and even though no one's following him anywhere else again, CIA, sounds like, might be helping out, uh, he needed a way to get back into the U.S. market with his films. And so that comes through Oliver Unger and AIP connections and all that shit. Uh, so he's able to then get these movies also in the U.S. without setting his feet here, but able to get that money out. <laughs> right. And only three of these movies we're going to talk about were co-produced by AIP. The rest were done with Towers, Unger, and this other guy, uh, Andre Previn, is that his name? <laughs> I should have, should have written it down, but they did a small, they had a smaller company called Commonwealth United. So here we are. We have arrived in 1967. Uh, well, I guess actually the story starts in 1965 where uh, 
Harry Allen Towers starts his first film for this output, uh, not with Franco. This is with uh, the great British journeyman Don Sharp. And that is the face of Fu Manchu. Now, just real quick, because we're not going to go all over why Fu Manchu is problematic because you're not babies, but yes. Fu Manchu. Discerning human beings, you understand. Yes. Fu Manchu um, is related to this author named Sax Romer. He wrote a bunch of these books, uh, helped perpetuate the what is known as the yellow peril stereotype, although ironically that does not start with him that starts with a guy named mp shield in an 1889 book called the yellow danger but sax Romer doesn't help this at all beginning in 1913 his first book the mystery of dr fu manchu and over the course he would make 10 you know so many of these books i think like 13 of them so these movies or these books start getting adapted into movies, uh, the most famous being the MGM one with Boris Karloff from 1932. And that uh, one, it be noted, uh, is, is particularly brutal in the realm of uh, why these movies are uncouth. Yeah, that yeah, that one does have um, some problematic things within it, to put it one way. Mm -hmm. So... But before that, though, there were other ones. There was uh, at Paramount, there was uh, Roland V. Lee did uh, The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu, The Return of Dr. Fu Manchu, and Daughter of the Dragon, which, well, that was Lloyd Carrick Corrigan. But that one starts uh, the, the stories involving Fu Manchu's daughter, Sumeru, who we are going to see and not officially see also in some of these movies. And uh, anyway, so yeah, these movies, these these are a thing. Like there was even a great, one of my favorites, The Serial by William Whitney, the Republic Pictures one, um, Drums of Fu Manchu is particularly impressive as long as you can understand that it's horrifically racist material, but horrifically entertaining also. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it, we said at the end of the last episode that y'all have listened to, welcome to our problematic journey through the works of Jess Franco. Yeah, and it won't end here, but this is going to be the hardest period, I think, for our more soft-hearted listeners to get through. But well, get it comes back. <laughs> no, yeah, but I'm just saying right now is a rough path. But even then, these movies, as we're going to get into, don't even they don't they don't drill into that yellow peril stereotype. Well, especially Franco's, he avoids it. He he does avoid it. He doesn't go as far as to maybe try to like, you know, toss in like another character that kind of is like not, you know, a racist stereotype. But uh, what was the name? What was Jim? What was that thing? The Jimmy Lee series. Yeah, was that what it was called? So it was kind of a way that they that Hollywood thought to and comic books to sort of combat uh, this stereotype. So anyway. Um, Back to Harry Allen Towers, he decides, I'm going to do my Fu Manchu thing. So 1965, The Face of Fu Manchu with Don Sharp. Don Sharp comes back the following year for The Brides of Fu Manchu. And then the next year, a guy named Jeremy Summers does The Vengeance of Fu Manchu. All of these movies star the great Christopher Lee. And now. None of those three are great. <laughs> they're not great. They're, uh, they're pretty it's dry. Yep. Yeah. 
So now we're in 1967, and well, I get still in 1967, and it's the latter part of that year, and Franco is making his version, and it will be, yeah, it shoots November, December of 1967, and doesn't come out in Spain until 1970. Um, and, uh, 1969 is when it premieres in the U S no. Nope. So again, that's why we're gone in the order we are. Cause it took a long time for these movies to come out. <laughs> wild. So here we are. The blood of Fu Manchu. And this is an awesome plot for, uh, for our buddy, I would say. Um, cause it's about. <laughs> an army of women <clears throat> being uh you know i guess tortured and uh forced to be bitten by this very poisonous snake so then they can go out into the world and kill dudes by kissing them mm-hmm. with a kiss of death um yeah. and it's one of my favorite snarky things um wait how does he fucking word it never mind keep going all right <laughs> Yeah, this is where we see a shocking amount of the Franco we are going to come to know and discover through this podcast start to emerge. And uh, he's going to really, this version of Franco is going to kind of bump and crest up against the shoreline throughout this. The heavy waves of his creative um, identity surging in these Harry Allen Towers movies. They don't doesn't fully emerge, but we're seeing a shocking amount within the blood of Fu Manchu. And I mean, just straight from the beginning, this it does kind of it parts. Well, the parts where Leland Smith or what's his name? Nayland. Nayland, whatever. Whatever. The the, okay. the foil of Fu Manchu. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, Nayland Smith. Yeah, Nayland Smith. All the scenes that he's not in are quite amazing. And there's really cool, there's really cool shit in here. Um, That languid pacing, that kind of haziness, uh, shots that, according to your film professor, might go on for too long. But these imperfections, uh, Franco is finding his own within those imperfections and sort of creating his own cinematic dream world yeah and just a reminder be like jess franco if your film professor is telling you that drop out of film school and just go see more movies um but yeah no there's there's so much stuff in here that like you said it's starting him starting to push against it we have fetish and masks like we've hit a lot um one of the craziest moments that's really odd i don't know if it's the (laughs) if it's the earliest in movies but there's a straight up pov shot that looks like a first person shooter yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it's really weird. Like the camera is totally in that exact point of view. Um, and then we also have a classic in the Franco world: uh, a headshot where he asks the actor to sit against a wall far away from the camera and be still for a really long time so he can zoom in. <laughs> and the actor sometimes, like in this one, can't not blink. So, you know, while they have been shot through the brain, they are still blinking. Um, we get 
Also, just being excited about a female character that clearly the people paying for this didn't want him to. And that is Sai Chin playing Fu Manchu's daughter. She's really good in both of these. Yeah. And you can tell that Jess would rather hang out with her. <laughs> this movie feels like it just wants to hang out with her character. Because well, every time yeah. even like Lee is on screen, and thankfully, if if you are interested in watching these, one of the merciful things is at least that Lee's not doing an accent or anything. Obviously, the way he looks is bad, but he's not doing an accent. He's still not just doing, doing his voice. Um, yeah, he's not spouting he, like Confucian, like. Yeah. No, he's just doing no, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And Jess clearly is not that interested in him in this role. Um, not. I mean, because, again, what does Fu Manchu do over the course of this movie except fail and then be like, yeah. I'm coming. I'll be back. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason a lot of Austin Powers comes from joking about Fu Manchu stuff. Well, and I think you're right. I mean, he's clearly going to follow his uh, obsession with uh with this character with his next movie yep and yep. uh one important thing while we're talking about towers here one of his favorite methods of getting people to go see movies was uh basing them on literature because that automatically would get people to think oh it's respectable so he starts with sex romer we of course get to decide but that is a classic uh shifty producer move um, to base it on literature, especially literature that's in the public domain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we have, I think, one of the, I mean, there's tons of, like like we said, the sets in this shit are awesome. There's an amazing, like, fight in the jungle that's basically silent, except just hearing nature, and it's beautiful. Um, you, have, you have the great uh, side character, the the kind of portly uh, bandit, who one of the most striking sequences in the film right is the this like essential siege of this town where his gang is killing people mercilessly and raping women and torturing people and it's done to this kind of jaunty soundtrack that it's like samba music it's really yeah, unsettling. Really yeah it's like a it's like that trip, typical kind of bossa nova samba thing that franco likes to uh imbue his films with and it just just, just this horrifying scene and then to have this character kind of in the third act become like not really a hero but like helpful to our protagonist it's an interesting like throwing around of these characters and honestly even more than Fu Manchu the real like sadist of this thing is kind of this character and how he likes to Franco likes to in give some of his sadists um more humanity than you would expect them to have and he does a in that scene franco does something that starts with towers my theory is he's already feeling so limited and trapped a little bit even with this first one is that the way he's getting out his angst and the way he feels about himself is he starts playing really really nasty characters himself so he's been in lots of his movies up to this point, but in this movie, and he makes sure you see his face, he plays one of the bandits, and especially in like a really, really awful rape scene moment, Jess is playing that character, and he starts to explore how he feels about being the person creating this stuff and being someone interested in that kind of Saudi and stuff. Uh, 
you know, in this movie, I think. Yeah. Also, I never thought about it, but I think since Pedro Almodovar was such a big fan of Jess Franco, this music is why he used music similarly in Kika. Just a thought. That's a that's a good point. He is uh, Pedro Almodovar, huge lover. Of- <laughs> you got to be high again. <laughs> I always do that. Almodovar. <laughs> we make what him it? Italian. I like it. Yeah. He doesn't have to be Spanish. <laughs> the other thing here that's interesting is, so he's working with Harry Allen Towers. Not only is he working with that guy, he's working with Harry Allen Towers' wife, Maria. Girlfriend R- at the time. Well, right? girlfriend at the time, but gets married during their time <laughs> yeah. uh, with Franco. So uh, in this opening scenes with these women being these very Franco images of women being whipped and uh, having snakes bite their bare breasts and, you know, very, very hazy stuff. There's apparently a scene missing that shows Maria Rome naked, hands tied above her head, getting bit by the snake. And it's the only thing missing from the movie. And I wonder if uh, Harry Harry Towers felt a little uh, jealous or protective of maybe not wanting those scenes out there. I don't think that's it. I don't know what it is. We'll see. Well, we'll get into it more when we talk about all the different versions of this one, too, because unfortunately, there are like four. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> but her, her scenes were exercised from the movie for some reason. Yeah, it's true. But I just can't imagine. I don't know. It's He's such a bad man. <laughs> it's hard to imagine him caring. Yeah, but unless it like he's like a guy that like, you know, is fine with, you know, a little on the surface stuff. But maybe yeah. he saw that. The way that Franco could stare into a woman's eyes. Yep. So, yeah. well, well, and we'll get, we'll, let's keep going here because uh, she's going to pop back up in some yeah. interesting ways. She does. So, let's, so, now that we're all caught up, as Will was saying, uh, Franco is clearly interested in the Lin Tang character in The Blood of Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu's Daughter. So much so that his next movie he shoots, The Girl from Rio, which was also called um, in other places, uh, something, something, Sumeru, uh, Land of the Females or something like that. Sumeru is basically the Lin Tang character, not doing yellow face, thankfully, but it is essentially the same person. And this is clearly Franco being like, oh, yeah, I I I'm interested. This is a way more interesting character. I'm going to do a whole movie with this without her dad. And she basically is in charge of an entire planet or country of uh, women. (laughs) So this is shot in 1968, February. It does not premiere until the following year in March in West Germany. Uh, And Germany is going to come through a lot for Franco. So... Germany becomes a very important state, uh, country to help finance his movies. Because yeah, he can't, again, at this time, he can't, you know, Franco, the bad Franco is not letting the good Franco make movies in Spain. So Correct. Yes. And in Spain, this movie is not going to premiere until 1972. <laughs> yep. So we're talking about the girl from Rio, the sci-fi fantasy uh, spy thing. Will, do you want to give us a little log line of the plot? 
Um, well, I mean, you pretty much covered it. It's Femina is the name uh, of this secret city. And it's all these babes who just want to kill all men. Yes, <laughs> it's basically, like this, there's this army of women who just want to destroy all the men. Um, and it kind of a little bit, it feels a little bit of a dry run for Sex is Crazy, which is a long way down the road. But since this does have illusions to at least that they're like aliens or whatever <laughs> you know like it's it's weird the movie is all over the place um but it feels a little bit like that in moments um but yeah i mean that's pretty that's pretty much it uh you can tell this one this one's interesting to me because you can feel towers and franco battling already uh because again towers wrote this one and you can tell that he works hard in the screenplay to undercut the women right like there are where things go without spoiling it like he makes he puts things in to make sure the women like need help from dudes still and that they're wrong to want a city of just them and that that's silly and franco is of course you know salivating at the idea of uh, a world of just women <laughs> who just come to kill him <laughs> you know couldn't be more couldn't be more up his alley. Um, and this is also, we get to start to see that Franco, while he's still playing ball and making these movies, he will make these films in certain genres, but he has zero interest in making sure they hit all the beats that those genres are supposed to. Uh, because this movie, shockingly, uh, before I watched this one ever, I thought it was going to be a spy movie, straight up. I thought we were in like Red Lips energy territory. But this is a really impressionistic, like surreal art house leaning movie with all the stuff in there that we already mentioned. There's like, there are shots in this one that looks directly like Andre Jalowski took it, uh, which is crazy to say, I know, but the hand thing, um, there's stuff in here that it look, I mean, I could do everybody like Yodorowski, fucking. I mean, even like Liquid Sky, A Boy and His Dog, Derek Jarman, like there's so much in this movie that looks like it was leading to those movies. Well, and I'll, yeah, I'll say that those moments pop up intermittently. I wouldn't say the movie maintains that through the whole way. But Well, that's kind of what I mean. I think it's a fight between them because I think Tower's influence is continuing to try to push this thing. And then when Jess gets to do what he wants, it's that thing. And yes, it lessens, but it it is present throughout the whole movie. Not as yeah. strong as at the beginning, but that weird push and pull between someone wanting to make his own kind of movies against a producer. Um, it's kind of, I don't know. Like it, if you let this movie happen to you, it's kind of hypnotic, I think. No, I, I agree. And he's clearly getting excited about things that he's going to want to like, revisit i mean he'll like you said sex is crazy blue rita you know mm -hmm. these things are all going to come back to him but yeah this is like like these movies that he's going to do with towers uh say for maybe a one are do come off looking like a bit of a compromise but it doesn't matter because they're so they're still so well made and even though harry allen towers is like trying to get his own predilections and ideas and in there and also just absconding with the production money on a whim, <laughs> you know, like he's able to really like 
if anything, Jess is like still working in a more classical studio mode, but he's learning how to make that classical studio mode even better and better. And he's honing in on his formalism more mm -hmm. and more, but he's still a little shackled. But again, that's not a bad thing because it's still the result is, is quite mesmerizing. Yeah. And I think, I think it, if he's still shackled, which he is, you can see the red marks on his arms because he's fucking pulling at those <laughs> chains so hard in this. Um, and we got to say that George Saunders is in this as yep. a villain yep. and who loves to uh, read uh, Daffy Duck comics while a woman is it's Popeye. Popeye. Oh, yeah, that's it. It's Popeye. Yeah, he's. <laughs> it's so funny and weird. <laughs> Popeye comics while a woman's being tortured in his pool to reveal. Uh, oh, it's real reveal like like stuff about the the guy he's trying to catch and what's interesting is franco is clearly in the editing room trying to make that scene more sadistic because there's two women also who take place in the scene now they're not in the actual shots of the woman being tortured in the pool they're clearly probably from another scene but he intersplices the footage of these two women on the other side of the pool basically through the power of editing not even paying attention to this other poor woman being tortured for information in the pool these other women are just sitting there remarking about their suntans and their drinks they're drinking and clearly this is something he thought when he was editing the movie i need to like kick this up a notch and just add like another element of sadism to this whole thing so you know, that's clearly a Jess Franco move oh, yeah. on that. And I think he, like you said, uh, he's not wasting the chance, even though he's clearly not fully happy in this world he's in right now with Towers. Because even if they don't work and they're not as frequent, he's learning how to do a lot of things with his camera that he would really start to perfect later on. Um like the mirror shots in this one really go up a notch. It's re and he's really experimenting with uh, depth of focus, moment to moment, um, that really throws it off. And that's kind of what helps make this movie feel like such dopamine. <laughs> yeah. Because every time you're like, I don't know about this silly shit, then you get like that crazy, that crazy scene where the uh, the dudes are that group of them is trying to kidnap that woman and they have those crazy masks on and one just has the weird cigarette dangling. He looks like he's in a oh, fucking yeah. video. <laughs> so, well, it reminded me of the the Mister Arcaden footage, uh, yes, the confidential report that Wells, who we've talked about. I mean, that movie. It's been a while since I've seen Mr. Arcade, and I, that's one of my favorite Wells movies. But I could, oh, see, that, so. yeah. I, I could see that bearing a, a more than a tiny amount of the Franco traces within that. Um, so that, that's that's all very cool. Now, the other thing is this movie, Harry Ann Towers saw this as something of a sequel to a film he had done, I think, the year previously called The Million Eyes of Sumeru which um, starred Klaus Kinski and Frankie Avalon. 
And this, I we I think I we also fucked up. Sumeru is not the name of the character in this. To add to the confusion, that's what I was confused about. Yes, it's Sunanda. Sumitra. Su- no, it's Sunanda. That's the name of the character. Shirley Eaton's character is Sunanda. (laughs) Okay, then there's must be so. How did where'd you get Sumitra? I'm looking at it, dog. I'm looking at it right now. (laughs) Sunanda. All right. Well, maybe it's it's probably different names in different languages. Maybe that would be. Either way, it's not Sumeru, the person it's supposed to be. So for whatever reasons, it was changed to Sunanda. I don't know why, but... Or, yeah, because it's it's listed as Sumitra in some places also. No, that's funny. Anyway, the opening of this movie, if that doesn't hook you... Oh. That, and I don't want to spoil it. That's what, yeah, it'll... That's what will throw you off so much because you think you're strapping in for just a spy movie and then you start this motherfucker. <laughs> and it's like, that's a lot of Jess Franco in that opening right there. And the theme song is just about how awesome Dom women are. <laughs> no, I mean, Franco is clearly like turned on by these women. He's so, yeah, it's like, it's almost embarrassing if he weren't so good at shooting things in like an arty way, it would be embarrassing. How exciting. Right. <laughs> So, this movie starts it's or starts winding down its production, and uh, Harry Allen Towers and Franco are sitting around, and they're uh, they realize that they still need to shoot more footage at the Carnival in Rio, and they're like, "Oh no, we, we're just gonna be." I, well, Harry Allen Towers is like, "My money is gonna be wasted sitting around for weeks. We have to shoot something." So, written over this like less than three days, Franco and Towers make an entirely new film that began shooting. They wrote it over a weekend and it began shooting that next Monday. And that is a movie called 99 Women, which is very funny that this was such a throwaway idea because this is going to influence. Uh, a pretty major genre in the exploitation world, which is the women in prison films. And it's kind of starts here. I mean, yes, there are some other movies of women in prison and things happen, but they don't quite get at it. Like 99 women does. And even 99 women doesn't even quite get at what these movies are going to do. It just gives, it gives the, the catalyst needed for that to start, even though it doesn't even follow all the rules that they would start to. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And it doesn't quite go into like how sadistic and nasty these movies would get. And it also doesn't, doesn't sh- what some of these movies do really well, especially like when a God like Jonathan Demi gets involved with it. It's depictions of lesbians is morally dubious. <laughs> uh, yes, but now, not as right dubious now. as it would be when other filmmakers did it in a couple of years. I gotta say, absolutely no, no, that's true. And also, it's still, it's still better than what it would become. It's not. I'm not saying it's great or even good, but yeah, <laughs> it's not nearly as bad as it as it could be, or as people wanted it to be as they started to come to these movies and and this could be franco probably fighting with towers about how he wanted this to be portrayed because 
clearly Franco is the one who likes lesbians and Towers, eh, you know, he could have an old fashioned attitude about him. He might uh, find them to be titillating at the at and that's it. Yep. So and it certainly Franco finds them extremely titillating, but he also has a profound respect and admiration and probably kind of like jealousy. Oh, um, absolutely. Come on. I've, I was going to save it for, you know, like movie number 80 or something. But if if Jess doesn't fall into the category of at least considering that it might be a small, sweet lesbian trapped in that body. Certainly feels like it, especially once he's allowed to do whatever he wants. It's pretty clear to me. Or uh, how he feels. <laughs> yeah. Or he just totally marvels at. Well, at this time. Uh, sort of the freedom of those kind of relationships and the yep. the, the the bucking of uh, convention. Yep. So anyway, so well, he's truly he's truly like one other like another person we love to talk about. It's the rare time that I will say I like a libertarian a, liber- a libertarian because of what their specific libertarianism is. And Franco is much like Clint Eastwood, where he's just like fuck off. People can live. People can make art, leave each other alone. <laughs> yes. So Franco is shooting this movie in Brazil, clearly in the same park, national park that he shot Blood of Fu Manchu. Because mm-hmm. there's some shots that I'm like, that's that. That looks like the same patch of land. Nope. Um, but this is uh, about some women uh, who are sent to prison and they are, there's not 99 of them, unfortunately, but there's a, there's a small handful of them and they're they're in there for various reasons and yep. they are under the the swift sadistic hand and whip of the people running the prison which is a totally schnookered Mercedes McCambridge incredible incredible performance truly an iconic lesbian who i mean i'm sure franco had to have appreciated a movie like Johnny Guitar and the lesbian themes oh yeah underneath there because mercedes mccambridge is not cast like for any other reason he probably met her through wells also but yeah but nevertheless she is here and so is herbert long um <laughs> the great uh foil for uh inspector clouseau yeah. he, he is here as a sadistic like warden or general maybe i, I don't know exactly what he is supposed uh, to well, he's the guy who runs the men's side of the colony. So on this the island, governor. no, he's a governor. Oh wait, no, he's. I was thinking of the other guy. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the dude that <laughs> controls everything. Yes. And get called in when too many of these women keep dying. Yes. So we're not going to go into the plot because we're time is clicking away here. But this movie. You get uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you get it. And uh, the women escape, and that's where the stuff in Brazil comes and it's a prison escape movie as well um what to me what is most interesting about this movie is not so much the scenes in the prison which are everything's just kind of juxtaposed against the beige background it's very bland and maybe for obvious reasons because it's prison so it's not supposed to look nice it's supposed to look drab and confining but the movie really feels franco to me in the flashback scenes Mm. and there are two flashbacks that he goes full Franco and they're dark and twisted, oh. 
and very horrifying, but you see this pop art, almost like Kenneth Angerness pop out. Yep. In those. Absolutely. Yeah. That motorcycle scene. I mean, God damn it. It is so beautiful how it's shot. It's so beautiful. And it's also, again, like, it's like, it's like Kenneth Anger where they were brilliant at getting across things with zero money that people with the biggest budgets on earth think (laughs) they can, that they can do in a better way. But this stuff plays straight to your guts and it really hurts. Like it, it really hurts. It really yeah. that seems especially. Um, oh, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, it 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 made me wonder, and this is something we're going to play in some of these episodes: is directors influenced by Franco who wouldn't admit that? Now, Almodio Var. Almodio Var. Almod Almod. How do how do you like to say it? No, it's you. It's Almodovar. I like Almodio Var. So. <laughs> Fine. Almodovar decides to <laughs> be the one to say, I like these movies. I'm actually going to sh- put Bloody Moon in one of my movies. Now, there are three directors we're going to talk about today that I think are influenced by Franco. Right here, I would not put it past Paul Verhoeven to mm-hmm. have seen these scenes because he also has a flair for horrifically well-composed rape scenes that are just horrifying that kind of fly against the mood of the movie. And, uh, you know, his latest Benedetta, eh, seems a little, uh, not, not even just influenced by something like the demons, like, like by Franco in general. Yeah. I mean, get to it. I'll be really annoying because it's a specific cut of the demons. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. No, 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 that's true. That's true. (laughs) So this movie, um, you, you, you get the idea of it. It's it's not like this is going to be his most exciting foray into the women in prison genre. He'll return, and it might get a little more brutal because the, the rape scenes in this are, despite what is going on, it's not – they, they cut away from it. It's not shown graphically. Yeah, yeah. But – Enough is shown to tr- completely unnerve you. So, oh yeah. Well, I think it's more unnerving the way he does it. Oh, it, it's better this way. Yeah, it is un- is one hundred percent better this way, and it's just interesting that uh, you know he's he's coming to this right now. So that same year, a couple months later, in May of June, he's moving fast. This guy. He gets involved with his what is going to be probably, I think, well, along with another one, couple, maybe two, his most expensive production. And that is his first foray into adapting. Well, I'm going to say loosely adapting the works wow. of the Marquis de Sade. And that is Justine from 1968, shot in May and June. Didn't premiere until the following year in Italy. And as far as I can tell, it looked like it never premiered in Spain. It premiered in Germany. There's a reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's true. And it premiered in France in 1970 and in the UK in 1971. And 
yes, there are multiple cuts of this. There's the French, German, and the UK. We're not going to get into those right now. But this is uh, this is a pretty massive epic movie, and it's a I'm, million. It's a million pounds is the budget. Yeah, it's a million pounds. Um, it's astronomical in the world of Franco. That's a lot of money. <laughs> this is made in Spain too. Yeah, and it was originally. I'll be quick. I promise. I'll be nerdy. But I watched the interview with Harry Allen Towers, and. It was originally also a Spanish co-production. They were planning on doing it, and then they uh, read it. (laughs) And they were like, no, we can't do that, and you can't shoot that here also, because we will go to prison. So you can't do that. You cannot do that. And so, of course, Jess and Harry were like, okay, no problem. We won't do it here. And then chose to shoot it in one of the most famous buildings in all of Spain, designed by antonio gaudi (laughs) that's right in barcelona in the uh, the gothic quarter that's right that's uh it is pretty yeah yeah that's a there's a there's an amazing moment where uh harry allen towers talks about when he was in berlin later the minister of culture of spain was there and came up to him and was like you know you can't show this in spain we know with that building you shot it in spain He's like, oh, what a notable what? building in all of Spain. Yeah, also a building next to a school. And so Franco had an extra assistant hired uh, to be on lookout. And when the kids were coming out to play, everyone for this movie would run to get inside and hide so that no one called the fucking fascists to come and shut it down when the kids were around. Yes, they <laughs> were. They were. Yeah, they were playing it very safe with kids in general. Uh, something that they take out of the screenplay is uh, a character who, I, listen, I'm a big, I'm re- I'm gonna have a tough time in these because I'm a gigantic fan of the Marquis de Sade and his writing. Yeah. I, he's one of the yeah. greatest satirists, eroticists of all time. His shit is not necessarily meant to be taken literally all the time. He's he, hilarious. He is hilarious. Funny. Just he's like Jess. He's a punk rock dude. He's also not like depicted. He's not the character that even Jess depicts in these movies. Well, I mean, Harry wrote it though. That's why. Harry but, yeah, wrote Harry wrote it. And, but yeah, so this movie starts with like Klaus Kinski, just like not saying any lines of dialogue, just like writing, love, I writing in a jail cell in like feverish, you know, sickness with his stories and he's writing Justine, allegedly. And uh, again, Harry Ann Tellers is going to return after working with Franco to the Marquis de Sade with a hero of ours, uh, Toby Hooper's uh, Night Terrors, which really goes to certain lengths to show the Marquis de Sade is like a villainous Freddy Krueger-esque. I mean, Robert, England, awesome. Robert England plays him. And yeah. it's like, you know... I think he was just kind of more of a a, a syphilitic uh, shit kicker who was incredibly smart. And the one thing that most of these movies never get is the philosophical debate that those stories are having with the material so that it's not just outright horrificness. I mean, the only person that truly, really nails it is Pier Paolo Pasolini with 120 Days of Sodom. But 
did you see the part where so when towers approached jess about doing Desaad, he was so excited of course right because he's like oh my god i love it and he told him he read it when he was 19 and he got obsessed with all the Desaad stuff and in this interview the first thing jess says he was like well i told him that i what, what do you want to make it just can't be solo because that's just a list of atrocities you can't make a movie out of that which is awesome and that's what should be on the solo poster <laughs> <laughs> that's so sick that he said that oh yeah and i'm sure he was completely floored when solo came out and well we'll get to that but um so this movie was bought by aip and also never showed in america which is very interesting i wonder what the reasons for that could have been apparently in 1969 i've never seen this there's a george cukor film called justine that is not based off the marquis de sade oh i was like wait we don't know about that we fail we're quitting this show if, if, yeah, if, if, if there was the, the gay version really of justine around we <laughs> have to see it uh mm. It's interesting, George Cukor, The Women, must have been probably a movie that Franco really enjoyed. Oh, yeah. Um, so this the movie, Justine, never really came out in America until it came out on video in 1986 under the name Deadly Sanctuary. Horror. Well, that's, a, that's a different cut that and came out that we'll talk about later. That is a much shorter version and it's, it's interesting but yeah so even we didn't even get the full version here till even after that yes and also this could have been aip had sunk a lot of money into a movie they did that sucks fucking dick called the sod <laughs> which is just i remember seeing that movie really young it was weirdly at our local library and i yeah. I, I checked it out and i just remember thinking, this is really bad this is not a good movie. And it, let's tell you what, it does not hold up. So no. there's the, there's some like, there, I, I can find some perverse joy in watching it, but it's a terrible movie. I agree. So it's possible that they thought that this might fuck up their own financial returns. So they just bought it for distribution and then shelved it. Oh, well, because it's a shame because boy, it sure beats the fuck out of their dumb movie. And it also, I hate to say it, this movie kind of shares a similarity. And I wonder if Mr. Stanley Kubrick saw it when he did uh when he did Barry Lyndon. And I also wonder if Polanski saw it when he did Tess. Polanski for sure did. There is no way he could convince me otherwise that he had not seen this. Yeah. It's a l I mean, it's a lush, beautiful movie that really doesn't have a lot of the Sadian influence that you would think oh, it's have. Barely. <laughs> it, it does it actually at all. There's a little bodiness, but it's even like it's it's your typical like feels like an English little body romp that like uh like a Tom Jones or some shit like that. Yeah. But and if if there is anyone who doesn't know this story, just quickly, two sisters, one's younger than the other, out in the world and Juliet. Yes. And Juliet and uh, the older sister Juliet immediately is like, I know where to go, dude. Don't worry. And they go to a brothel. Justine freaks out and is like, No, thanks. I'm good. Juliet stays. Justine goes out in the world, immediately gets ripped off by a priest and goes down this uh, path 
of maybe she's into it, maybe she's not. But again, that's not really here because this is not a decide adaptation. Not in this um, movie. She is definitely not into it. Yes. And there's a bit of it's a, a little like Forrest Gump. Like, she just kind of gets like dumped around in various well, places. Well, the reason for that. So Rosemary Dexter, if I'm getting that right. Uh, yeah, Rosemary Dexter was supposed to play Justine originally, and uh, she was played Justine originally, and Jess was very excited. And then one of the U.S. producers of this, because they brought in so many people, because Harry Ann Tyler's again wouldn't give up any of his money. Tyrone Power, the very famous person, yeah. forced them to put his daughter Romina Power in this movie. And the way Jess talks about it is so funny. Like he's he hates it, and he's like, "It's not. It wasn't even her fault, really." But she's terrible. She doesn't know what's going on. We'd have, literally have to say, "Now look left. Now look up." So that's why this performance is just so flat, and that's part of why the movie doesn't work. Um, and one of the funniest stories: <laughs> Mercedes McCambridge was so furious that uh, <laughs> that it got switched to be Romina Power, and she hated her. Uh, and keep in mind, Mercedes Recambridge, if you don't know, is the voice of The Exorcist <laughs> as we build up yeah, to this. Okay. That's a good point. Uh, but she, already in Franco world at this point, having had a lot of fun in 99 Women, is excited to go even further with this. She asked Jess directly and says, hey, because there's that scene where she's supposed to slap her around. She was like, she can't act. What if I actually slap her? And Jess goes, yeah, yeah. And so in the movie, Mercedes McCambridge really does hit this poor very confused girl from america <laughs> and it's the one moment that you're like wow i can feel it yeah you felt it well as bad as she is in the movie or as miscast as she is she does look like a babe in the woods who has no idea what's like happening to her at all moments oh so she goes from the yeah she runs into mercedes mccambridge she <laughs> She runs into a character named Roden, who in uh, this is like the name of Raymond in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this is the part that's because <laughs> this is a character in the book or the, the story who uh, is a pedophile who entraps young artists and kids into his depraved world of pedophilia. In yep. this, he's a sensitive artist who gives a nice interlude to Justine before she goes around being kind of thrown between different people who use her and abuse her. Um, the, the one, the main one we have to talk about is Jack Palance who goes, he's fucking off the sauce in this movie. He's the, uh, and truly just confirmed. He said every morning he'd wake up and start slamming red wine. So he's just drunk and I let him go. Yeah. <laughs> And, and they had to trick him into this movie by doing the scene first where he's the saint, like floating towards the camera. Which is one of the greatest, greatest oh, moments sorry. in the movie. It's so good. Uh, he's the, the general of the Benedictine order. And they are a group of sadistic monks <laughs> who, oh, it's unfortunate because this scene, like before he starts floating, you see all these shots of bells and, the sky and trees blowing in the wind and him floating. And then this Justine's all tied up and you're like, damn, it's about to cook in Franco land. No lightning strikes the, the temple 
where it actually originally strikes Justine in the in the story, but <laughs> it, it it basically just quick escape and <laughs> strikes it. She's free. She runs off. We're gonna move on, um, but uh, it kind of wraps up in a very well. Some would say an unsatisfying manner. I kind of like how it ends with her. In- Rodan saves the day. <laughs> yeah, with that. Yeah, which is so. Sorry, stupid. Raymond saves the day. It's but there's an there's a there's definitely a winking sarcasm where she's uh she's like praying and talking about like the journey that led her here, which is I don't know. I, I can see him having a little fun with that. Can we can we briefly talk about the actual last moment with Go ahead. and yeah. whether or not especially I know you're such a Desad head, that's why I want to talk about it real quick. So yeah. Yeah. in the wraparound story, which is Klaus Kensky, it was supposed to be Orson Welles, but he wouldn't do anything erotic. Kaskinski, and there's a moment in the end uh, in this movie where you see him writing something down and then he crosses it out, right? And it's one of my favorite things to hear Desaad heads talk about because they're like, is this where Desaad had to write three different versions of his book because after he was yeah. in prison, he didn't want Napoleon to come and put him back in prison in the Bastille again. And so some of the biggest Franco people are like, is that Franco calling tribute to that moment where he's like crossing out the real ending of the book. And then is it also Franco putting his middle finger up to Harry Allen Towers for writing the adaptation this way, since we know Franco loved Assad. I, th- I don't know, but it's fucking cool. I, I think you're right, actually, because there's also that line where there, uh, some character says something to the degree of like, oh, I think it's one of the, the, the thieves. And he says like, oh, our landlady sure is a bit thrifty. <laughs> does seem a little bit directed at Mr. Towers. And uh-huh. I, I think you're right, because clearly Franco understands the sod and he will, well, as we progress in his filmography, he will get closer and closer to capturing the the horrific, beautiful poetry of the sod. But right now, that's probably what he's doing, having a little fun saying, yeah, I know how it went for him. And it, we're kind of paralleling each other with our stories right so he shoots that not a lot of money's left over there's a lot of a lot of money was spent on this movie and uh harry allen tellers doesn't like to spend money so we arrive it's the same year it's 1968 <laughs> it's only like a like a month like a couple of weeks after they finished this massive production they put into turnaround the follow-up to their Fu Manchu movie and the final of this long-running Christopher Lee Fu Manchu series. And that is called The Castle of Fu Manchu, which did not premiere in Spain until 1972. It premiered in Jamaica before it premiered in Spain. In okay. Jamaica. <laughs> before so i mean i could totally see like um like lee scratch perry and king oh, Tubby and prince jami like just like smoking big old fucking blunts <laughs> and then going yeah. to see this movie and laughing but only really enjoying the final 15 minutes of the movie where yeah. it actually would correspond to some nice uh ditch weed I don't know though, because I gotta say, this is the actually the only movie in the Fu Manchu series that I truly, really like is this one. 
It really is. It really is. I think even out the gate. Sucks. This movie sucks. Oh, it, interesting. Okay. This, I it, think it, the it, last one's way worse. Oh, I, I just I disagree. I, this one to me, oh. I'll, I'll say why I don't like it. Okay. Blood of Fu Manchu is so like there's a there's a hypnotic quality to that movie that makes it sing for me. This movie does not work for me because it feels extremely pieced together and threadbare, even more so than like nightmares come at night feels to me. Like this movie oh, feels like about so many things. Well, this movie just feels <laughs> flea bitten to me. Like they're just they're like they're putting in shots from like Don Sharp movies. Like they're uh his they open I, I, with stealing footage from a night to remember, which is yeah. fucking sick. That's yeah. such a great way to cut a corner. And yeah. like the whole thing starts like a silent film, like that just that blue shit everywhere. Hey, oh, I love this movie. And the lighting, this is him truly i think i love it so much because it feels like harry said as long as you don't go over this and we can get it out in two weeks you do whatever you want on this one and so franco's just playing <laughs> but i but he's not though i don't know how much he's actually really? playing, except for when you're in fu manchu's lair with all the gels and lights everywhere that's yep. beautiful unfortunately most of the movie is not spent there <laughs> and you have to put up with all this other bullshit. But then when you get to Fu Manchu's lair, you're like, yes, this is what I like. I would have I would have appreciated more of this. So that by the time it gets to the, the water flooding scene and all the gels and the water, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. But we but, get okay. I think I don't know. I did. Damn, this surprises me. Okay. I didn't know we disagreed on this. It surprises we, me too. I don't know why you like this movie that much, but Oh, I love it. I re it really oh, it's so pulpy, like truly. Well, it's so, very if pulpy. You seen, if you haven't seen this one, this is uh Fu Manchu uh stealing a bunch of opium. Uh that for some cool. reason I do like uh, that. He steals a bunch of opium. Can, that can freeze the oceans. <laughs> He's using opium to make this thing that can just freeze stuff. For some reason it's really yeah. stupid and and um, footage of that is also from brides of fu manchu which is awesome yeah I so love two, two don sharp movies or i mean sorry he didn't do night to remember that was roy ward baker sorry yeah. Yeah. so he takes that and you know they definitely didn't pay for it um no 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 <laughs> and like the frozen corpse stuff is so sick we're we've returned back to dying for science I like that. And I like that they look like Andros. Yep. Yep. They look like Andros. The damn sequence, the way that's edited and cut with stock footage from whichever, I don't know what that shit is from, but that is amazing. Like that, that crazy fast cutting. It's so good. And then we also get another like genuinely tender, beautiful moment where <laughs> like after they do the surgery, when he forces the doctors to do the surgery, right? yeah he pulls his mask down and she pulls hers down and gives him this really tender kiss on the cheek and jess has framed it this crazy wide like way wider than it needs to be bigger than a two shot and just sits on it for a second and it's like a really soft moment <laughs> amongst these people who just wanted to like study science <laughs> while fu manchu freezes the world and then yeah and then the last 20 minutes are just heaven i don't know the, it, i think just because it moves so fast for me this, it does this one doesn't, I think it moves a lot faster than blood. But that's why I don't like it because 
Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I get it. It's not, it's not the same kind of the patience and that kind of Franco stuff. I think to me, he's just getting out the other things, and then it culminates perfectly in where we're headed next. But <laughs> yeah, so well, now you have a split opinion on the castle of Fu Manchu. If you're a Patreon yeah. listener, you can you can uh, tell us what you think. Am I right, or is Will right, or? Are we both kind I'm of? I'm truly, I'm truly shocked. I think probably the answer will be why are you, why do you feel passionately about any movie? Yeah, that's that's going to be. <laughs> that's probably the answer. <laughs> this this is just a promise that there is going to be all sorts of disagreements between Will and I as this goes along. So it's true, and it's going to get more heated too as both of our confidence builds with this research. Um, because that's why I'm feeling spicier today because we successfully did the Patreon episode. Absolutely. So, and you also can't be too confident about Castle of Fu Manchu, but I will be curious what you find that confidence for as we come along. Yeah, no, I'm, I am too. I am too. So let's close this episode out with one hell of a movie to close these out, and that is Venus in Furs. This it is. is- this is a movie you've probably heard of if you're listening to this podcast. You, this is definitely the one that seems to break through uh, a bit easier than the rest of them do. And that could be just because it's an incredibly good movie. It's uh, It could be because AIP actually did distribute this movie. And it, cut it. And cut it. It could also be that, you know, you're a little pot-smoking Velvet Underground head and you... Uh, <laughs> You decided to see where they potentially got the name uh, for their album. Nope. So, and wait, you could well. potentially be like me and be a blasphemer. Maybe I don't know how you feel about this, but think that while Donald Kamel made a lot of great movies and performance is one of them, Venus and Furs is so much better than performance. Than performance? Yeah, I really think so. I really do. I didn't think that until this revisit. Okay. I don't. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I love. You know what? I like performance more before they get to the house, which is weirdly what people would think is backwards. I love it. Like the cut. I mean, Nicholas Rogue's cutting in that thing is just. Oh, it's off the. I mean, it's impressive. When he roughs up that office, oh my god! Okay, we're not talking about performance right now. But I, do, I do see what you're saying. I also feel like a fucking idiot because I'm realizing Venus and Furs could not have been, if anything, he they could have gotten this title from the Velvet Underground. I don't know if he was listening to the Velvet Underground. Uh, well, the, he didn't and, name it this. Well, he wanted to call it Black Angel, right? He wanted to call it Black Angel, and then also Paroxysmus. He never That's called it Venus and Furs. From what I understand, AIP called it Venus and Furs, which they were probably like, there's this sick album for people who do drugs. <laughs> Here's a movie. And especially because what we'll get into, what they did add that Franco shockingly didn't um, is would make sense why they would name it this. It's very possible that someone at AIP, maybe Roger Corman, like could have like seen the... Uh... What's it called? The Exploding Plastic um, Inevitable Tour, the Andy Warhol thing that the Velvet Underground 
premiered at because they don't cut that album. They cut that album like 66 and it comes out early 67. So interesting. Okay. Well, anyway, this movie again, premiered. Yeah. Oh boy. (laughs) Well, some people. All right. Well, he's shooting in Istanbul. He loves Istanbul. He shoots a lot of movies in Istanbul. He says it's one of the most cinematic cities he's ever been in. And, uh, he, I guess this movie deals with a trumpeter who is remembering his run in with a woman who was gang raped and murdered by three libertines. And her spirit comes back from beyond the grave to seek revenge. And then engage in this sort of vertigo-esque plot with this trumpet player who has this phantasmagorical romance with her. And it's it's a lot of things in this movie. It is not incredibly uh, easy to pin down, but it is very uh, trippy, as they say. I could see also him being influenced by a novel that came out um around this time by rudolf wurlitzer uh, a novel called nog now rudolf wurlitzer was the great uh great author great screenwriter he wrote stuff like um tulane blacktop uh okay. yeah billy billy the kid or what, what packer and billy the kid so he's this fantastic uh writer and he does this book called nog which curiously starts with a guy on a beach trying to remember his past Oh, okay. I don't know if you read the book, but it's a short book and it was very influential to like Thomas Pinchon. So that would not shock me if Franco had read this book. Either way, this this is a boy. This is a strange one that definitely is a uh, a good entryway if you're you still haven't found your way in yet. Yeah, just throw this shit on. There's also just a good entryway into movies being exciting. True. <laughs> if you're if you're sad about the state of movies and you've had like a couple uh you know shitty ones in a row, just throw this shit on. It'll remind you what movies can do, even if you don't like it in the end. But and it's also more in, not in all the ways, but it's got more actual dissod in it than the last one. <laughs> Justine so I mean in this I also wondering the one I thought about it's not the same at all in plot right but the way he does it especially with the libertines Klaus Kinski's back um I thought of Miklos Jansko's private vice's public virtue with this which is what when did this one actually shoot this was like 68 when it shot yeah so that comes out two years before um I'm sure he was watching Miklos movies you know Oh, definitely. Again, it's, not the, it's not the same, but that's someone who got the chance to do Dasadian style things the way they wanted. And good God, does that movie go go there? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. But this this shit is this is one of my favorites. Um, and like you said, this, there's a reason for Jess Heads. It's been the one they show people first so often because uh, we get a lot of everything that you try to sell people on about jess franco um 
you know, the music, Manfred Mann, Jesus Christ, this, oh. this school is legendary. You've probably heard the score, even if you haven't seen the movie. Um, Jess, we're back again, finally, to him writing this one fully. So he writes it and directs it. There's no Harry here, clearly. <laughs> well, I think that Harry makes an influence on it, not exerted by his own will. But I think my guess is that the character of Jimmy, now a trumpeter, that's very Franco. Maybe he connects there, but there's a scene where certainly Franco would never have reacted this way. When when the when the dead woman comes back from the grave, who is Wanda, this is the Venus in first, played by Maria Rome, who is the wife of Harry Allen Towers. When she comes back from the grave, he, the Jimmy character, is seen this Rita character, the uh, Black Nightclub singer, played by uh, Barbara McNair. And he is basically set on two-timing her with this ghost that comes around. Now, what's interesting there is there a scene, there's a scene where he follows uh, Wanda, the ghost, the vengeful ghost, to a party. Now, she's going to the party to exact revenge on one of the libertines who raped and murdered her, uh, a woman. And she goes there to seduce her to eventually kill her well when jimmy walks in he sees her surrounded by a bunch of people watching her kiss this woman so it's starting to be a pile at this point like people are starting it's getting starting to get a little writhy getting <laughs> a little orgy-esque it's a little, little orgy-esque and now a hero of ours, like Mr. Jess Franco, would just have whipped off those pantalones and probably, <laughs> probably gotten in the pile or at very least would have smoked a cigarette and watched, you know, king shit like that. <laughs> also just logical shit for if you're at that kind of party, man. Don't be a loser. Don't be a loser. <laughs> Get in the mix. Shut the fuck up. Don't be a or baby. Just leave. If you got to be that lame, just go home. Go home and cry about it and come fight with your mind about that, how you actually wanted to be there. But yeah, you're such you're a just trumpet on the beach again. <laughs> I'm going to get off on a tangent here. But what I'm saying is, is that the way that this Jimmy character reacts to seeing this, this woman who he's not dating or in a relationship, but he yeah. just looks after her. Yeah. He sees her kissing this woman with all these people watching and an orgy about to start. And he reacts so violently and like a shitty dude, but he doesn't react in a jealous way. It almost seems like he's just, well, it's jealousy, but he's also like, you're kissing a woman. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. He's furious. And that's his wife or yeah. Harry Tower's wife. I it, hadn't thought about that. I think that Franco yeah. is kind of having a little fun. Yeah. Cause he's get, cause even though this one is very different from everything else he's made with Harry, and you can tell he was excited, right, to be able to stretch and do something he actually wants to do. You can still feel him, you know, being pissed and being like, how did I end up here? How am I under this dude's thumb? Um, you know, and so, yeah, shit. No, that's. I think you're right. Could be, but who knows? But this is a, he's starting to get more improvisational. Yes. And we have floor writhing 
for one of the club performances, which becomes his favorite thing on earth. <laughs> Very writhing on the floor, yes. Yeah, he loves a writhing performance at a club. And this one's fucking sick. It's, oh, it's so it's so um, good. And the carnival footage again being <laughs> the <out>. same <laughs> from girl it's from awesome. it's yeah, but it's back. It's <laughs> he so had a reel hanging around. He's like, let's cut this back into it. This one truly, obviously, we always beg you guys to give us money, but truly this one, even if you just do it for one month, you should join the Patreon just so you can hear us talk about Franco's preferred cut of this, which if you haven't seen this and you watch it and you like Franco, you will be floored that this isn't his original cut because it feels so much like it is. Agreed. I will actually jump in on that debate. Have you seen it? I have, and I'm going to hold off on it until we can get to it. Because it's really fascinating um, it what he wanted here. But yeah, no, this movie just, this movie slays. We, I think another person, especially in the second half of their career, um, not the end, but in the second half of their career, I think Valerian Barovchik is seeing this movie as he starts his second round of semi-successful stuff. Um, I think he's seeing a lot of Franco movies, uh, okay. <laughs> honestly, at this time, because it really helps him you know form into what he was known for around this time and i think it's interesting and not just david lynch but jennifer lynch too also clearly loves jess franco yeah oh absolutely uh, no absolutely and uh you know there is i mean yeah there's a clear uh scene that i think shows that lynch uh, was a fan uh when he sees uh he sees wanda at the club when he's playing music which is definitely lifted to Lost Highway. It's like it's 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 so overt. It has to be. It yeah. has to be the has the way be. characters are framed next to each other. Right. It's it's very clear that that um, that Lost Highway was influenced by this. So, and this is also one last thing. One one person who has championed this movie for a long time and let people show their print of it. And he will keep coming up throughout this, especially specifically later with his own movies. But Tarantino loves this movie and, and loves Jess Franco, loves yeah. Jess Franco. And it will come up more directly in the second half of this episode when he starts to use shots in his movies. Yes, he does. And I just want to say before we close out here, uh, the way that he came up with this movie was a conversation he had with Chet Baker, the jazz player, which is pretty sick. And apparently he won. Which makes sense because you don't forget that Jess truly is an incredibly talented musician and hung out with all these people and is really playing the instruments, trombone and piano in this one, by the way. Yep, I was about to say, he does do all that. And uh, he originally wanted the character, when it was called Black Angel, to be black. Mm-hmm. And it was well, I think it was Barbara McNair first. And he had yeah. to switch it around because the producers... Huh. Harry, no. Interesting. So what does he do? He's like, fine, I'll put your wife in it, in that role, and I'm going to have so many shots of her naked. (laughs) And I'm going to, maybe I'm going to have a private conversation with her. And that's where we're going to leave this. Yep. So. Things start to get messy, just like that party in the movies. Really, life starts to mirror the movies. Yes, uh, life starts to stand still around him, like the characters that look like they're out of fucking like 
you know, last year at Marion Bad. And which is again, he's showing that influence. This is very like much a follow-up to Succubus in many ways, with him kind of dialing in on that. All right. We're gonna go and uh we're just gonna let you know that the next one is gonna be pretty heavy. There's a lot to talk about in this next one with some major hitters. So we're going to break it up. And that doesn't mean that the major hitters stop. They only keep coming. But we're going to learn to pack more into these. Yes, we didn't say it at the top of this one because we forgot. Uh, but what we've been doing right now is basically six movies an episode. We're going to double that. We're going to do 12 an episode, but try to keep it the same length. Um, not because we don't want to dive into this stuff forever, but we know it's exhausting and probably annoying even to think about uh how many episodes we're gonna have to do to get through this so we're gonna torture ourselves more as far as how much we have to get through but love ourselves more because i am already changing a lot going through this process um and i gotta say right now i thought i was a huge jess franco fan before uh, but now it's become astronomical already. So, I mean, but I couldn't be more sure now. And already I'm just like, y'all nerds, y'all fucking nerds. This dude, this dude should be playing at art house theaters. Absolutely. Else also, but, you know, so open your minds with us. We'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>